almost all meters in 2005, and most of them now in, in many cities are identical to the one that was uh, invented in 1935. The first one was put in in 1935, and and you you put your money in, and you hope your your you got back before your time ran out. And it was it, it just reviled by many people, saying it's an infernal combination of a slot machine and an alarm clock. Hi, everyone. You've tuned into the Active Towns podcast, conversations about creating a culture of activity. I'm John Zimmerman, founder of the Active Towns Initiative and your host on this podcast journey. Thank you so much for joining us. It's always wonderful to have you along for the ride. This is episode number 43, and it is my distinct honor to have had the opportunity to recently interview Donald Shoup, distinguished research professor in the Department of Urban Planning at UCLA and the author of the wildly popular cult classic book, The High Cost of Free Parking, and its marvelous follow-up, Parking and the City, a compilation of case studies and stories from around the world. To say that he's an accidental rock star of all things parking policy in the urbanism, transportation, and planning circles would be a vast understatement. And as you'll learn, he's even been animated into a cartoon episode for the Adam Ruins Everything program on True TV, which aims to debunk misconceptions that pervade US society. Parking, once you start digging into it, is truly a fascinating topic. And it is connected directly to so many of our land use policy challenges and our ability to create active towns. But before we dive into all things parking policy, please allow me a moment to mention that this episode is being brought to you by the generous support of our donors and monthly patrons on our Patreon page. Thank you all so much for helping out in any way that you can. I really do appreciate whatever contributions you're able to provide. To learn more about how you too can make a difference, please head over to activetowns, that's plural, .org and click on the donate button in the top right corner of the page. As always, I've included the donation links in the show notes. Okay, time to get this mini master's class with Donald Choup rolling. Enjoy. Donald Choup, it's so wonderful to have you here at the Active Towns podcast. Welcome. Well, thanks for inviting me. Take us back to the beginning. How did it turn out that you started to focus in on the storage of motor vehicles? Well, I started when I was a graduate student in, in economics, and I got interested in, in land economics. And then after I finished uh, my degree in economics, I went to UCLA and was uh, teaching urban planning with an interest in, in land economics. And parking is the single biggest land use in any city. And almost nothing had been uh, written about it. And anything that was written was very boring and untheoretical. And so I, I, I was hired by the California Department of Transportation to write a, a piece on equity in, in transportation finance, equity. So, I, so I, I came to it from looking at equity because one of the things that I looked at was employer-paid parking. And I thought this was very unequitable. 
is that if an employer offers you free parking or nothing as your commuter benefit, which is was then the case in 1975 and is still the case now, I thought that was unfair to give a big subsidy to drivers and nothing to everybody else. Um, especially because the, the subsidy is a tax-exempt subsidy. The federal government encourages it because if you pay a, an employee with, with uh, free parking, there's no tax accrued. But if you use that same money to give them a salary, you have to pay taxes on it. Right. Uh, Employer-paid parking is the most common fringe benefit in the United States, uh, much higher than uh, pensions or health insurance. So I thought there was a major flaw in our policies, and I guess the reason I, I stayed with parking after that is I had proposed a solution, which is the state could require um, employers who offer free parking to also offer the cash value if they don't take it, uh, which I call parking cash out, uh, which I thought was, would uh, just be adopted everywhere immediately because it's fair and it reduces the incentive to drive to work because it doesn't take away your free parking. But if you do take the free parking, you miss, lose the cash. And I made a, a presentation on this once, and there was a legislator in the audience. And within a few weeks, there was a bill in the legislature on parking cash out saying that all employers with more than 50 people, which is, I think, far too high a limit, must offer uh, the cash value of any parking subsidy offered if the employer pays a third party for the parking. Say, if you rent the, the parking and give it free to your employee, you have to offer the employee the option to take the cash value. So that became a, um, a law in California, and it was recently adopted in Washington, D.C. as well. They call it the Equity Amendment Act, focusing on how it was unfair. But what I was mainly did my research on is what a big effect it had on how people get to work. Uh, I did studies of thousands of employees and had data on how they got to work. And some of their, some firms began to offer the, the parking cash out. I could see what happened before and after. Right. And let's say for every 100 employees, about 16 of them switched from solo driving to either bus or carpool or walking or biking. In one case, uh, rollerblading to work. This is Los Angeles. That's right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and I thought, here's, something, here's a very inefficient commuter policy that has all the wrong consequences. Everything we say we, we don't want is what is created by employer-paid parking. And I realized that you can't just tell people to charge for parking. So I came up with parking cash out. And I think it's been, I, I felt kind of lucky that my research at a fairly young age had uh, resulted in legislation in, uh, in the state and in cities and in Washington, D.C., because they changed the tax code to, to favor this as well. And then since then, I've spent a lot of time thinking of ways to solve problems relate, caused by parking misallocation, that it's a, it's a very expensive operation to provide parking, but we almost always park free uh, wherever we go. You go to the grocery store, to a theater or a restaurant or Costco or Walmart, you always park free. And most people think, well, because how could it cost so much? You know, I never pay anything for it. 
couldn't cost that much, but it's fabulously expensive. And it, the cost is entirely hidden from us. Uh, that just because the driver doesn't pay for parking doesn't mean the cost goes away. The cost is still there. It's to, somebody has to pay for it, and that somebody is everybody, because it gets included into the cost of everything you buy at a grocery store. Just a, a, a few pennies out of every you know, transaction may go to pay for the parking. It's shaved off in everything, theaters or shopping malls. They have to pay for it, and that it doesn't come out of their side. It comes out of the customers, even if you don't own a car. Even if you're too poor to own a car, you have to pay for the parking of other people. So I guess what I think, they think so many of our parking policies are so wrong that getting them right can lead to a much fairer and much more efficient country and one that is, has less pollution, that is healthier. I think that, that uh, the, these parking reforms that I recommend, and I hope I get a chance to talk to you about them, uh, that they will improve the environment, they'll improve uh, urban design, they'll improve uh, economic activity. I think there are lots, lots to be gained from parking reforms. And getting back to your original question, how did I get interested in this? Nobody else was interested because it was such a low-status topic. And I was thought of as you know, very, a very peculiar person who would write all these articles on parking. <laughs> But I had been writing them for many years, but it all, I think, came together when the book, The High Cost of Free Parking, was published, and I assembled it all together at one place, and it was quite a, a strong attack on what the American Planning Association had advised up until then, and the American Planning Association published it. It seemed like such a strange thing. And yet they published it, and you know, I said that we've been doing everything exactly wrong uh, for the past hundred years, and we could benefit a lot by turning, making a U-turn in every one of these and going in the opposite direction. Now, th this particular book is, like I said, I, I refer to it as a wildly popular cult classic book. Uh, especially in our circles of urban design and planning and, and the, the new urbanism group, we are oftentimes referencing it. My background is in public health. And so I look at things through the lens of how the built environment is encouraging or discouraging people to live a healthy, active life, hence the Active Towns Initiative and encouraging places to, to transform themselves into environments which encourage people to walk and bike more often. And this book keeps popping up again and again and again. And, and I remember when you released it, it was just, A, it's comprehensive. I mean, this is a long book. So, so for folks who don't know, this is a big book. It's a heavy book. It's a weighty book, but it covers stuff in such wonderful detail. Now, the three reforms that you talk about are, in fact, remove off-street parking requirements, uh, charge the right prices for on-street parking, and spend the parking revenue to improve public services on the metered streets and in those areas. And in your books, you, you provide some nice examples, especially a, of that particular case of, you know, we're collecting some revenue, let's put it to work where we are collecting it. And uh, you'll appreciate this because I spent a, a small amount of my career uh, working on uh, in Pasadena, right in Old Town, Pasadena, uh -huh. right 
at that sort of in the 1990s, right when things were starting to, to get implemented. So those are the, the three main reforms. And I'm sure that as, if we dive a little deeper into sort of each of these, we're going to get to, I think what you, you alluded to is that these policies, these requirements that we have are pervasive and insidious in terms of the, the fallout and the impacts to our society. Yes, I think so. Certainly in Parker and in many other ways, that almost all of our planning policies favor the car and 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 not your own two feet. Right. So I think that uh, I mean you did a great job summarizing what I would say, and maybe we could talk a bit about uh, Pasadena, which is the example of of making parking meters popular by spending the revenue on popular public services that. Uh, Pasadena, uh, you're too young to know, but it was a, a real commercial slum in the 1970s, and it had been one of the premier shopping districts in California in the 1920s. But it, it, um, uh, if you remember old Pasadena, it, it had a, a wonderful consistency along the street. Is that that's because they put a rail line down the middle of the street in the 1920s, and they had to shave 14 feet off of the front of every building to widen the street. And some property owners did early uh, historic preservation. They sliced something out of the middle of the building and pushed the facade back 14 feet, and other buildings just sliced the first 14 feet off and put a facade that would have been popular in the 1920s. Off hmm. as now, would that have been right on Colorado? That's right, on Colorado Boulevard. But then it had decayed because of the Depression and World War II, and then after World War II, there was very little off-street parking, and the, the city subsidized at enormous cost a new mall downtown. They destroyed three blocks of historic blocks to put this enclosed mall downtown, and the rest of old Pasadena just life had drained out of it. Nothing used above the first floor, and often a lot of the first floor empty. But the city wanted to put in parking meters because there had been complaints from the merchants that there wasn't enough curb parking. There wasn't enough parking. And they had a two-hour limit, but the, the employees and the, prop, the business owners would move their cars every two, two hours to avoid a ticket and then complain there's no parking for their customers. So the city wanted to put in parking meters and say, here's a way to solve that. And the <laughs> merchant said, no way, it'll drive away the few customers we have. <laughs> and they argued for two years. So they bought the city had bought the meters and was storing them in the basement of City Hall. And finally, the city said, all right, if we put in the meters, we'll spend all the money on improving public services in Pasadena. And they had, had a planning document saying how to revive old Pasadena. Uh, I mean, there were wonderful buildings in terrible condition. They had been decaying since the 1920s. And it didn't pay to restore them because their customers weren't there to uh, justify spending a lot on the building. So they, they knew it could be a wonderful place if they, if they could fix the sidewalk, uh, restore the street furniture, and clean up the alleys, but they had no way to pay for it. And then the city said, all right, if we put in the parking meters, we'll put in all the revenue, we'll rebuild all of your sidewalks. We'll take all of your sidewalks out, put in new sidewalks of the very highest quality. We will put in new street trees with beautiful uh, cast iron tr uh, grates at the base so that they, it would look good. And we'll have the best historic street furniture. 
They completely cleaned up the alleys with all the dead animals and mattresses that were in them, and they put the wires underground, and they planted trees in the alleys, and they became walkways. And now it's one of those popular places to go in Southern California. 30,000 people come on a weekend just to walk around. It's, it's such a great place to walk. Yeah, it really is. I, I, I have to interject and say it, it's been night and day uh, from the time when I was working there, which was in the early 1990s. And then I had a chance to visit just a couple of years ago. And it's just it, I almost didn't even recognize the place. And that, and that there were no meters until 19, I think, 94 is when they put them in. And some people, and then everything took off, not because the meters were so great, they were very good, but because of the money. Right. It's over a million dollars a year. And they, they did everything the city could do to make walking and, you know, to make it a walkable neighborhood and uh, where it's safe, it's clean, it's good looking, <laughs> it, it's very inviting. So, but it all came in the money from the meters. So that's a wonderful place to pivot here and say that, okay, so we're charging the a price, okay? And let's let's address what the right price is in a moment here. But we're 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 collecting the money and then we're reinvesting that money back into a targeted area, which makes it much more of a popular decision to be able to say, hey, yes, we're gonna collect, you know, the funds for this on-street parking right here in this neighborhood and we're gonna reinvest back in this neighborhood. So talk a little bit about that strategy of how to make the the parking, the on-street parking work well. Well yes, so the giving the returning the money is 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 one uh, uh, element of the three that you talked about is so that the stakeholders see that that there's some benefits of the meters other than just the fact that they're going to regulate parking, that they're going to pay for what we want. And I think one way to start with that is not to talk about parking at all, but just ask people, what would you like to have in your community? And if they would like to have a shuttle bus taking them downtown or any, whatever their priorities are, say, well, we don't have any money for that, but some cities pay for this with putting in parking meters. Would you like to do that? And make them think it's their idea. Uh, but anyway, so then what do you charge at the parking meters if you put them in? And I think most meters are what I would say is underpriced, but sometimes overpriced. That I've never heard anybody in any city explain to me coherently how they set the prices at their parking meters. Say L.A. went 17 years without making a single change and then abruptly multiplied it by four. You know, there's, I've never heard anybody say, well, this is our policy. This is the principle we, uh, we follow. So I propose the principle is the right price of curb parking is the lowest price the city can charge and still have one or two open spaces on every block. Now, let's pause here and, and really hone in on that because that's beautiful. That, there's a magic to that, right? It's a way to explain this is what we do. And I, I, I've never heard anybody say, I know a better way to do it. But it's not as easy as I said, because you have to be able to, to, to predict what the right price is. But San Francisco and Los Angeles and other cities have started measuring occupancy and looking and see what happens. And, and all you have to do is unbox it or chronically over-occupied, no, then you just nudge up the price by 25 cents an hour until you get to the right price. 
Exactly. And I, and I think a great example here is, is would, would probably help the listeners along is that if the parking meter price is, is too low, then you'll have folks that, you know, are going to, like you mentioned earlier, they're going to, you know, sort of sit on that spot there. It's not going to get the turnover that we're looking for. If we can get to that right price, then you're going to have the turnover that is necessary so that when somebody is is coming into that particular you know business district there's hopefully going to be one to two spots available on a, a block correct Yes, and I, 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 it's interesting that you look at it from the point of view of the merchants, uh, which is the right thing to do, and the and the residents. But the way I uh, usually uh, talk about the value of this is that if those spaces are all occupied, you drive around looking for a space. You cru- cruise for parking, which is, everybody's done it. They know what happens because they've done it themselves. And I did my own studies, and my students did studies. There had been studies dating back to 1927 uh, in, in Detroit. It was appropriate the study was done there. They looked at cruising. It turned out about 18 to 30% of the cars were in two different locations were hunting for parking. They weren't going anywhere. They were in the traffic, and they, they, were, they were in the traffic only because they were hunting for parking. It's a line. It's a queue. Right. But it's an invisible queue. And I think that getting rid of that cruising is, is far more important than getting turnover. Cruising congests traffic. It pollutes the air. We now know it leads to global warming. It endangers bicyclists and pedestrians. All this extra traffic it backs up at intersections, and if uh, somebody sees the space being vacated, they'll, uh, they'll stop, and a bicyclist will have to merge into the middle lane, uh, and the cruisers are not concerned about pedestrians. They're looking for parking spaces. So I think getting rid of cruising is the reason to, to charge the right price for car parking. It, it shouldn't be cheaper than that, because if it's cheaper than what's needed to produce one or two open spaces, uh, then we will have this cruising. And it wastes people's time and fuel. I mean, there's just everything wrong with it, but because it's invisible to, to people on the sidewalk, we ignore it. But in the car, we just think of it as a personal issue. You don't think, well, gee, I'm advancing global warming by hunting for this curb parking. Uh, so I think that it shouldn't be it, it shouldn't be higher than that price because half the spaces will be empty and the merchants won't be getting customers and things like that. So I think we have focused far too much on turnover, which is uh, which we get by putting a time limit on the free parking, and we should instead focus on the occupancy. That is the criteria, not turnover, which had been, the planners had thought of only about that for for decades. And anyway, it's hard to say what's the optimal turnover. Should it be one-hour parking or two-hour parking or three-hour parking? So I think we should let prices do all the the planning. Yeah. And your general rule of thumb is somewhere around 85% occupancy is that sweet spot, which equates to that one to two spots, you know, in, in a block. Is that about right? 
That's right, and that's taken off as another rule of thumb, 85% occupancy. It's not a bad idea. This should be true for off-street parking as well, because you don't want people cruising around in garages. <laughs> there, should, there should be open spaces in garages. So I think that you're right, that the, 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 one of the first ideas, you give the money, the meter money, to add public services on the metered block. Second, you charge the right price, which varies by time of day. Cheaper very early in the morning and very late at night. But uh, in cities that vary it by time, it's usually uh, cheaper in the morning and more expensive at noontime. And then uh, tapers off in the afternoon. So you have to have different prices at different times and on different blocks because some blocks are much more desirable than others. Uh, so I think that it's fine grained. I think instead of having like in Boston used to have until uh, last year had uh, the same price at meters all over the city. Uh, and they were said at a dollar an hour, and uh, I think it was uh, uh, 1993. And then they weren't changed for something like 12 years, and then they they hiked it to a dollar 25 an hour. And I thought that was simply because they were incompetent, uh, you know, they just weren't caring. It's the way most cities are. They, they, just, they just didn't pay much attention to it. But apparently, it's a state law saying that the city had to couldn't charge more for meters than it cost to manage them. And so they, they invited me for a talk in Boston, and I made the case, the one that you heard once, and uh, about charging the right price for curb parking. And I was mistaken about what Boston did. It was a state law saying that they had to charge a dollar an hour everywhere. But what I said, well, here, if you have parking benefit districts and you charge the right price for curb parking, that would work. And there were reformers in Boston who put it into state legislation, the simplest state legislation I've ever seen. They just took out the line about saying you have to charge only to receive enough revenue to pay for the meters. They said you could charge the prices to manage the parking, and you could spend the revenue in parking benefit districts. They actually called them parking benefit districts. Boston and some other cities have very quickly jumped on this, and it's very easy for them because most of them were charging very low prices for parking. So they weren't getting much revenue. And if they weren't getting much revenue, saying, well, well, we'll spend this money on sidewalks in your area. It doesn't take any money out of the general fund. Whereas in most cities, they put the meter revenue into the general fund. And then the politicians say, well, you can't take our, that's our money. And they count on it. And cities do need money, especially now. Uh, so I think that it's more important now to focus on places where parking is free. I think I do tend to rely on examples, but I am writing a new piece and focusing on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. New York City has 3 million on-street parking spaces, and 97% of them are free. There are not even time limits to the residential areas. You have to move your car for uh, so the city can clean under it twice a week. And that's considered a terrific imposition on drivers. So they have some of the most valuable land on earth. And it's, the city will let you use it for free if it's for your car. So I was working with their district officials and said you know, that there are 190,000 people who live in the uh, between Central Park and the Hudson River, uh, the length of Central Park. And there are only 10,000 curb parking spaces, that are most of which are free for the residents if they can find a space after driving around for sometimes an hour. So I said, well, if you charge the right price for this curb parking, and I got the cost of off-street parking, which is about $500 a month, 
if you charged just $500 a month for these spaces, um, that would be over $50 million a year in revenue that could be added for public services. And that's about $300 a person who live in that area. So it's as though you put a tax of $300 a person on everybody who lives there to provide free parking for 10,000 cars after people drive around long enough to find a space. So I think that's one of these examples where our current situation is so inefficient and so unfair that if you just point out, here's a way to solve the problem. And when I was in Boston, the, the, the great speaker was the, um, what is her name? Anyway, she's now Secretary of Transportation for California. She had no research on parking, but she gave the lunch talk. It was one of the smartest talks I've ever heard. She said, if you want to talk about parking reform, don't even mention parking. Just ask a community, what would you like to have? What is your highest priority? What is your most unmet need? And then say, well, here's a way to pay for it. And since it's often people from outside the area who pay for parking, it's, it's just visitors who pay for it. Miami Beach has a good policy, which I think other tourist areas would have, is that the, the price of park is $4 an hour on the South Beach. But if as that's what it says on the, on the multi-space meter, if you pay by app, it says that it's $4 an hour. But if your car is registered at Miami Beach, it's 75 cents an hour. So the visitors don't know that they're being ripped off compared to the residents. And the residents know they're getting a lot of revenue from the visitors. So I think it's, it's like uh, Monty Python's idea for solving Britain's economic problems is tax foreigners living abroad. And I think that effectively that's what parking meters do, is that they pay for public services on the meter block. And we don't know who pays for it, but it's certainly mo not most of us. After this quick break, we'll discuss how technology helps facilitate dynamic parking pricing strategies, the impact that parking requirement policies have on housing costs, and the competition for space at the curb in our new era. But first, allow me this brief moment to mention, if you are enjoying the Active Towns podcast, please be sure to subscribe to it on the listening platform of your choice. Okay, that's all for this intermission. Let's get right back into it with Donald Chu. You've been working on this for a long, long time, and you've been you know, studying that concept of the high cost of free parking or inappropriately low metered parking a lot has changed because as you you alluded to it earlier is that you know the best strategy is a dynamic strategy where we can hone in on the right price at the right time very context sensitive and you know the old meters were dumb they were quite you know very very simplistic in terms of the technology the world's changed. Now we have apps, we have the ability to do all sorts of very, very creative, dynamic pricing. I'll reflect on the last time I was in Boulder and needed to park my car over uh, to, to meet somebody for lunch and, and actually go for a bike ride afterwards. And it was it was fantastic. I pulled up to uh, an on-street parking spot and looked at the sign. They said, download this app. Here's the QR code. 
did that, you know, set up my account within, you know, a minute or two. It was not much time at all. And before I knew it, I was, you know, my, my parking was paid for that spot. I was good. It was dynamic parking, uh, pricing. And I was like, this is cool. Don would absolutely love this. <laughs> well, when I wrote the book, uh, in, in 2005 is published, so I wrote it earlier than that. that uh, just at the time this new technology was beginning, because uh, uh, a lot of meters, almost all meters in 2005, and uh, most of them now in, in many cities, are identical to the one that was uh, invented in 1935. The first one was put in in 1935, and and you you put your money in, and you hope your your you got back before your time ran out. And it was it just reviled by many people. Say it's an infernal combination of a slot machine and an alarm clock. Uh, <laughs> you were just gambling all the time, and we've all done that. Absolutely. Uh, but uh, I mean, it was the most moribund industry outside of North Korea for decades. But suddenly, there has been this explosion of technology, and, uh, the kind of what you're talking about. Yes, we have that now, and this will be considered very old-fashioned. Not, not long from now. The, the cars, the apps are in the dashboard of the car. The car is connected just as well as your, as your app. But the car knows what the cost of parking is everywhere and traffic and things like that. It will guide you to the right parking spot. So I think that the technology does uh, allow this. And there's been a sort of a virtuous cycle is that smart policies require the smart technology. And the smart technology enables the smart uh, policies. So as the city's growing demand for, for uh, smart technology has led to m so much innovation in the, in the paying for payment methods, the enforcement methods, the documenting methods, and the, and the, the, the cashlessness of it, and the frictionless of it that it, it has changed so utterly that we can charge the right price, I think. And, uh, and we'll just pay for parking the way we pay for gasoline or tires or everything else associated with the car. You pay for what you use. And I think nobody is ever going to want to pay for parking, including you, uh, certainly me. But that shouldn't be the how we organize our cities. And that's what we have done, is we have organized our cities so we can park free. And maybe I should get to the third policy that I've recommended. Well, I was, yeah, in fact, I'll, I'll, I'll tee it up here for you, because I, I think in the context of, of what we think about at Active Towns is it, it's, it's what can we do to better position our cities from a land use perspective and one of the 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 most difficult things that we have, and I'm going to use one of my favorite quotes uh, from the book, which is, "Off-street parking requirements are a fertility drug for cars." Well, that's right. <laughs> well, the third policy I recommend is removing off-street parking requirements. Uh, maybe I should start by saying that most of our policies uh, work exactly against everything you stand for. Is zoning. <laughs> now it's become a hot topic. But suppose Henry Ford and John D. Rockefeller had uh, hired you in 1900 to say, what kind of planning policies would stimulate the demand for gasoline and cars? What can you recommend? Well, consider these three. One, will we separate land uses, you know, housing here, jobs there. 
workplace someplace else and not allow them to be mixed. They have to be segregated. And that will increase travel between. You have to go to work and shopping. That will increase travel. And then we limit density, is that there could be no more than two stories here, no more than single family there. Zoning is all about limiting density. It isn't about encouraging density. What many people think their planners are trying to live us in high density. It's all about restricting density. So we restrict density so there can't be very much happening anywhere, and this will spread the city out so that it'll be farther to go. And then the third policy is minimum parking requirements, saying that anything that's built has to have ample free parking. So the parking between the buildings spreads everything out. So once you have these three policies, driving is the default way to travel. That it just seems that it, it is, for all most of us, the natural way to travel. So what we are doing works against everything you want to see happen. So how do, we, how, how do I encourage people like you? I think you're an example of what, what happens often to me, is that you're not really interested in parking. You're interested in active towns. But other people are interested in global warming, or they're interested in air pollution, or traffic congestion, or traffic accidents, or inequity. And I try to say, well, Here's how parking will suit your goals, so that I can figure out something that somebody who's not really interested in parking, but they might be interested that here's parking can align with what they're recommending. So I think that you know I'm re recommending that we should remove all street parking requirements, which are you know just so entrenched in urban planning that it seems. Uh, unnatural not to have them, that what will happen if we don't have them? Well, then the cars will spill over onto the street and they'll congest traffic, which is true if the parking is free on the street. So in order to get rid of minimum parking requirements, you have to manage the curb parking properly. That uh, it, it's, it, it's just wishing away a problem if you don't say, well, it won't work unless we have market-priced curb parking, and market-priced curb parking won't work unless we spend the revenue to improve the area. So getting back to Pasadena, you take the meter money and you improve the, the pedestrian uh, environment. It's, it's, um, and there, there are no taxes involved. There, there, it's not a special assessment. It's not a business improvement district. The money seems to come out of thin air, and it does. It comes out of thin air. It used to go into the one side of the parking meter and out the other and clean the sidewalks. They, in old Pasadena, they, they, they clean the street and the sidewalk every night. It's absolutely immaculate. They remove graffiti every night. It, not that there is any anymore, because if they didn't remove it every night, it would multiply. And they have horseback police officers every now and then, sort of as decoration, but it shows that this is a very safe place to be. And they spend about $400,000 a year just on cleaning the, the, the 15 blocks of old Pasadena. That's why people go there. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and just the fact that it, you know, you're investing that money back into the, that location and you're doing one of the hardest things that cities have when they build infrastructure is actually maintaining it taking care of it. So it's, it's wonderful that that's, they're prioritizing that. So one of the things that you sort of touched upon that as somebody who really is about helping people lead healthier lives and 
transforming the environment and encouraging behavior change, healthy behavior change. The reality is, is that there's a lot of behavioral stuff involved with driving a car. It's, you know, when it's so automatic, it's so easy for us. But then there's also a lot of emotion attached to this perception of parking and parking is a very emotional topic. Talk a little bit about that. Well, I, I think that, yes, the economist try to say what a rational person would do. And, and what I've been telling you is all about what a rational person will do. And I remember I was, I went to Boulder one time to give a talk. And for those of you who haven't been to Boulder, you know, it's sort of like a utopia. It's like Berkeley before the protests, I suppose. So that it was, uh, they do everything right. Uh, say for the parking permit districts, you know, often the spaces are empty during the daytime because the people have to drive off to get a job to pay their mortgage. And so the city sells non-resident permits in these neighborhoods. So you could, you could park in a neighborhood, you know, eight blocks away and walk to, your, to where you to work. And it provides money to the city, you know, that they could, uh, uh, well, they can make it cheaper for the residents for to get their permits. But these non-resident permits are a very good idea. And they're spreading usually in, in, in university towns. Here's this empty space. There are students who would love and other people would love to have it. Uh, well, we just have to sell it. You shouldn't be shy about having a market. And then Boulder also, with its parking meters, it gives free transit passes to everybody who works downtown. See, at no cost to the employers, it's a fringe benefit. If you work for me, you get a free transit pass for all your travel, not just to, to, to work, all your travel. And that's paid for by the parking meters. And the parking meters are usually occupied by visitors to the business improvement district. So I think Boulder does a lot of good things like that. Well, I, one of the things that I wanted to do, and it goes back to what we're talking about with uh, removing the off-street parking requirements, and that is how it's so insidious and it impacts, you know, certainly the cost of, you know, even flows all the way to, to housing. It's not all the way through to housing. <laughs> it's a very short trip. Hawaii is just going through a revision of its policies on parking, and there is a, a, a group like yours, probably associated with yours, that is pushing to remove Wall Street parking requirements. And they just finished, and I just got it yesterday, the most wonderful uh, study of how minimum parking requirements increase the cost of housing. So they got data on the cost of constructing a parking space in a parking structure, in a podium for an apartment building. Honolulu has a lot of podium buildings. That, you know, they're awful looking, but the first four or five floors are parking, and then the building starts after that. If you're lucky, there's retail at the ground floor. But they looked at that. They also looked at, at shopping malls, and they looked at uh, the prices in, uh, on Maui and Kauai and the Big Island. So they got the cost of parking spaces. They got an international consultant to look at the cost per square foot and the, the efficiency, how many square feet in the particular garage. So they had very good cost. $64,000 was the cost of a podium space in Honolulu because part of the construction is so high. The cost is so high there. And the, the apartments are small. 
So they looked at, well, how does this affect a 1,000-square-foot apartment, a one-bedroom apartment? And it turns out it added, it, it, if you look into the, the capital and operating cost of the parking spaces, added about three and $400 a month to the rent of these buildings. So if you're required to have these parking spaces, it's a huge, it's like saying you're required to have a roof on the building. So you, you just won't, you can't build the building without it. And you, you don't, if, you, if you're required to have two spaces per thousand square, two spaces per dwelling unit, there's so much you can't charge people for it. So that, that if you charge, start charging, then the, they would just have to, uh, somebody who, who didn't have a car would say, well, I don't have a car. I won't have to pay for parking. <laughs> uh, I'll, we'll all live there. So I think that they, they, they did excellent work on saying how much, Parking programs increase the cost of doing business and of housing, but for housing, it's something everybody can understand that the cost of parking is bundled into the price of housing, whether you buy it or whether you, you rent it. So, But it isn't just housing, it's everything else. We've hidden the cost of parking into higher prices for everything except parking. You know, if you were thinking of a way, a devilish way to torture the, a society <laughs> that is, which is completely overwhelmed with traffic congestion and air pollution, well, here's our zoning policy. We will require two, two parking spaces for every apartment. But it's true just about everywhere. Say across from UCLA which has some of the best transit service in Los Angeles, there are 180 buses coming and going per hour at UCLA at the peak hours. And yet right across the street, the city requires three and a half parking spaces per dwelling unit. <laughs> so, I mean, why should we subsidize transit when the city subsidizes parking right next to the bus stops. Um, so I think that it, it doesn't, the minimum parking permits don't eventually send the, the cost of parking into someplace else. It, it happens right away. And I think, so that's what the three things we're doing exactly wrong. We should, we should remove all street parking requirements, and now cities have them everywhere. You should even put parking limits. Some cities have gone straight from parking requirements to parking limits with the new limits lower than the previous requirements. Now, that shows a rather bankruptcy in thinking, that we know what is the right amount. Uh, but sometimes we change our minds. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, so I think cities, instead of insisting on 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 ample <laughs> off street parking everywhere, they should either be silent, as many cities do, say, do Buffalo change their whole table of parking requirements. You know how many parking spaces per thousand square for, for square feet for a nail salon or a pet cemetery or um, a uh, veterinarian or everything. There are hundreds of land uses that have to have parking requirements. And it's just a single sentence saying there are no uh, parking requirements for any land use. And that's happening around the world. Mexico City has done that. Sao Paulo and Brazil has done it. Hartford, Connecticut. It's, it's creeping in. So I think your zoning, that's one reform that would certainly suit your 
clientele, that the buildings would be closer, be more walkable. You could build infill housing without parking. You could build housing around the perimeter of parking lots, uh, you know, the big ones for, for Walmart or something like that. You, the new urbanists call them liner buildings. The land is already assembled. It's sort of one ownership. It wouldn't need any parking. You could build this housing around the perimeter of your of your parking lot and walking down the street it would look like old Colorado, old Colorado Boulevard in Pasadena <laughs> it could be a very nice street but it would only be yeah. 20 feet deep so get rid of parking requirements and then instead of putting meter revenue into the general fund it isn't that much money I mean per capita uh, but you should say but it's a drop drop in the bucket for the city. But it's it's an ocean for the neighborhood. It's all all the water of the world for the neighborhood. Yeah. So one of the things that I, I think about frequently is strategies for companies, employers, but also for for you know businesses, retail establishments, and restaurants and other commercial uh, ventures to try to encourage people to get to their destinations by walking or biking. And one of the things that is particularly concerning for many people who ride bikes is having safe, convenient parking for bikes. And so it's, I, I, I'm always fascinated because I look at it from that standpoint. Um, one of the terms that I use for, for safe and convenient bike parking, especially, and when, when I talk about safe, I mean, is it, is it, you know, located in an area where uh, a person parking the bike feels like their bike is in a safe spot and they personally will be safe locking up and unlocking from that location. In other words, it's not hidden in some scary part down the alley and in the back. It's, it's very prominent. We've got an interesting situation in the last few years because we've had, you know, micromobility popping up and suddenly the public space, there's competition for that. Talk a little bit about that concept of bike parking. Well, I think the earliest bike parking that I thought was very effective was in a parking garage. That uh, uh, Because the parking spaces are required, you can't convert them to, to, uh, for, from car, using cars to anything else. But in San Luis Obispo, that they, I was speaking there, and they took me on a tour of their facilities. In the parking garage, they had a wonderful bicycle cage. They had converted several parking spaces into a into an enclosure, chain link, that had a combination to get in. Every person had their own ID card, ID code, and if you stopped working, you no longer had access to the bike. And I thought it was very safe, and it was the most convenient, right at the front of the garage. It was the best spaces at the garage. And I've seen outdoor uh, bike cages. They're also quite wonderful. You know, they're structures. They have a roof over them, but they're open. So, you know, to, for snow and rain and things like that. So I think bike cages are uh, a very good way to do it. But on campuses, I think the nice thing about bikes is all you have to do is put up bike racks. I mean, it's so cheap that there's a lot of niches in the, in the campus that, there, that you could park bikes anywhere. And I think there are a lot of different ways to compete for the curb, That that uh, especially during the pandemic. There's much more delivery by Amazon and UPS and uh, they need loading zones, and Uber and Lyft needs loading zones for passengers. 
and shared cars want to have space as well. There are, there's, and restaurants want to open up in the curb lane. There's a lot of different uses for, for the curb lane, and free parking is not the highest and best use, but that's what it's devoted to in, in, in America. You're absolutely right. That competition for that curb spot is is really dramatic right now. And it's interesting because sometimes we'll, uh, a company, a, a business will say, what I want to do for that space in front of my business is I want to convert that from a single car space to a bike corral where I know that, you know, anywhere between 10 and 12, you know, people can park their bike there, either visit my establishment or walk two doors down to another establishment. It's, you know, it's that same space, but it's being utilized in a different way. Any thoughts along those lines? Well, yes, I don't think I would uh, say that it's the, it's the business owner's uh, right to, de- to decide what is done with the space in front of the business. I think the planners ought to say, well, what is the best place to put bicycles uh, here? Uh, sometimes there are spaces that are too short for a car, or and it's also not just for bicycles; it's for uh, birds and uh, you know the scooters. They call them bird cages, of course. Santa Monica has bird cages, so they're usually put on the street in a space that would otherwise not be uh, effectively used. So, uh, no, I don't think somebody say, I want a bicycle uh, corral in front of my store. But I think that if you do have bicycle corrals, you want to monitor carefully how often they're used. Yeah. So we want to make sure that the space is being well used, whatever it's for, and uh, really getting that highest and best use of that public space. We're starting to run out of time here. So are, is there any last things that we haven't yet covered that you definitely want uh, to leave the listeners with? Well, I think I would get back to the idea that we're doing everything backwards. We're doing everything the wrong way around. Zoning holds down human density. And it forces up the density of cars. So we have expensive housing and congested traffic. And that didn't just happen. We planned for that. I'm not sure that if I lived in 1930, I would have predicted (laughs) what would happen if, if we had zoning that limited the number of dwelling units in the city, and we required off-street parking, and we kept curb parking free. I don't think I would have predicted that it would lead to urban sprawl and polluted air and global warming. But I think that now we do know. And I think there are these policies that, that have been adopted, and it shows that they're not infeasible. I can't remember when it was I saw it, but uh, I, I caught a video of you, and it was a caricature of you. You were you were this animated shoop. Talk a little bit about that. How did that come about? Well, I was surprised. Adam Conover, I don't know if you've heard of him, but he's apparently a very famous uh, comedian who, who is wildly funny, and he has a program called Adam Ruins Everything. He has other things, and he wanted to animate me and because he I guess he yeah he's very environmentalist I mean he I think he and I think the same about a lot of things and so I, I agreed to go that we have a, a studio because of UCLA and in Southern California we have our own movie studio here so I went out to the studio and and I had to join the Screen Actors Guild and 
I think the uh, he, he had a script for me to read. I said I looked at that. I said, well, he his his aides came. He, I never dealt with him. I was always with his staff. And I said, well, I don't like this. I would never say that. So I rewrote it, <laughs> and he liked it. And then he had me on his podcast. I am just absolutely delighted to have had this opportunity to chat with you here today. So thank you so much for joining us here at the Active Towns podcast. Well, you're welcome, and thanks for inviting me. Thank you all so much for listening. Well, I certainly hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I always learn something new. I've included a bunch of helpful links in the show notes, including the one for the Adam Ruins Everything video episode. So be sure to check those out. Also, if you're active on Facebook, there's a group out there called the Shootpistas, and they're constantly noodling over these policy challenges, and Don himself is a frequent contributor. A couple of quick reminders before we part ways. Please don't hesitate to drop me a line if you have any feedback, suggestions, or questions. My email address is john, that's J-O-H-N, at activetowns, that's plural, dot O-R-G. It's always wonderful to hear from y'all. And if you're enjoying the Active Towns podcast, please help us grow our audience and this movement by telling a friend or two. Okay, that's it for episode number 43. Please take care of yourselves and one another. And until next time, this is John signing off by wishing you much activity, health, and happiness. Cheers.